Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier. As you do those things to that end, I sometimes talk about my own writing practice and things that I have learned along the way. If anything, I, I often quite the opposite. I'm talking about new confusions that have arisen in the process and things that I'm finding newly difficult but nonetheless I try to be honest and try to reflect on it and try to talk about where I am in the hope that that is helpful to other people especially you listening now um, and I, I get other writers on that and other people involved in publishing and other people in involved in this world of creating books and creating stories and creating non-fiction works and just the whole business of making stories and books. And I just asked them, hey, well, what have you learned and what's it like? And hopefully together I, I, I would be I'd be terrified of doing this podcast if I felt like I was uh, the only voice on it and that you were entirely relying on me to navigate the world. I think that would be irresponsible of me. And it's something that I laughed I would wasn't that worried about when I start but started because I thought no one is going to care what Tim Clare thinks. Well, it turns out as time's gone on that some people do, a non-trivial number of people do, and um, it does kind of matter to me that I'm not leading people astray. Um, no, no matter how few people, and I don't think any of you are hanging on my every word, but I, I realise now that um, some people have come to l at least listen to and value what I've got to say. So. Uh, the main thing I want to say is don't just listen to me and I, I want to rope in other people as well to get a chorus of voices. Or mm, Chorus makes it sound like we're all saying the same thing. Just a variety of different tunes that you can hear and locate yourself within that choir, so to speak. That was a convoluted metaphor. Today I'm speaking to the writer and poet and performer Kate Fox. I've wanted to get Kate on the show for a while. I was delighted that she came on. Obviously, I'm not going to give anyone an intro saying I was indifferent to them they're coming on. Uh, but here it is. I, I really enjoyed this talk, though, and it was particularly special for me because one of the things we talk about in our discussion is autism because Kate's been diagnosed as autistic and I've been diagnosed as autistic as you may know if you've listened to some recent shows and so I just kind of wanted to speak to a peer who I look who I look up to and like and admire I just wanted to check in with someone and say hey like how do you deal with this how's it been for you and I got to do that and I felt very grateful and it's also just a really great person to listen to and talking about poetry and writing and uh, why she does it and what her experiences of it are and I um, think you're going to really enjoy hearing the story of how she has got into write writing and the kind of books and authors and poets that really um, mattered to her and uh, where it's led her. I think it's really useful when we get into some practical not necessarily advice per se but lived experience that may resonate with you or may uh, light some light bulbs up for, for you in your own writing practice certainly that's how I felt as I talked to her so this was a really lovely refreshing 
delightful talk for me. I had a lovely time and I feel inspired. And I think all my best chats that I've had on here later on, and, and I should say there is a, you can go onto the, onto uh, soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Clare, I think it is, and there's the whole Death of a Thousand Cuts archive, and I think now I've got over a hundred hours of interviews with writers, poets, playwrights, pub- publishing people, all that kind of thing, some psychologists that you can listen to. And I think what's interesting for me is all my best chats, um, the wisdom and insights that people have shared have just kind of been folded into my own opinions. So later on, I forget <laughs> that I learned them from someone and I just think they've been what I've believed all my life, which is one of my less attractive habits, but I think goes to show how much I feel I'm getting out of these. Like I really feel very lucky because they serve both as a water cooler for me and a kind of free education, really, which never ends as a writer, but I get to speak to my peers and get to learn from them, really, which is, I feel really lucky that they let me do that. Anyway, um, before we get into the episode, just to say, I've put links to Kate's book, Where There's Muck, There's Bras, which is about the history of uh, women in the North. There's a link to that in the show notes. There's a link to her Twitter if you want to follow her on there and you can get information about what she's up to and especially any live dates if you're based in the UK. So there's those two things. Also, if you like the show and want to support me, uh, you, there's a link to my new book, Coward, Why We Get Anxious and What We Can Do About It, which is a non-fiction book. So you can go there and, you know, get that or any of my books um, really, really helps. There's also a link to the coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. You can go there and um, drop me a few beans, helps keep the lights on this podcast is entirely listener supported so thank you if you're willing to do that it's really lovely um i should also say i have actually set up a death of a thousand cuts discord server which for those of you who don't know is just like a little app that you can get that allows us to set up a little chat room and place where people who listen to the show can meet up and talk writing and maybe people who want to find accountability buddies can do so we can you can talk about episodes that you enjoyed you can talk about your own writing experiences you can meet other writers if you want to do like a kind of critique swap or just talk writing i shall put a link in the show notes to that discord server but it's just going to be open to anyone who listens to the podcast who wants to talk writing with other writers who wants to maybe share their work or support other people all i'm asking is that if you go and use it um don't be a d-bag be really kind and supportive um i'm sure you will be but um i will I, w- <laughs> I, I, I will, if there's any issue whatsoever with someone, I will immediately kick them out of it. I, I'm not going to put up with people being horrible to other people in it. I, I, I think it's unlikely to happen, but I just want to make that clear to put off anyone who, who might be thinking of going in and being aggy. Um, I just want it to be a place where people who want to support other writers can go. Um, but I'll put a link in the show notes. And if you don't know what the show notes are, they're just the sort of episode description. 
in whatever podcatcher you're using. There'll be a link there. That's it. Right. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's chat. Um, it's been it's a real pleasure to be to get another episode of the show out and keep going. It made me feel really excited and refreshed and feeling like this podcast is something I love doing and is of great value in my life. So I hope it has, you know, at least some element of that for you as well. This is my chat with Kate Fox. So, Kate, the first thing I wanted to ask you was when did words and stories first feel important to you? Oh, yeah, I think um, I like that as a question, actually. Uh, so I think words have felt important to me very early on. I think I was kind of very excited by words. I do remember at some point I was around six and I... Um, started making a list of words and what they meant and I thought <laughs> this might be useful to people but still it was pointed out that quite a few people had already had this idea <laughs> there we are I was I would have started a dictionary had I been left to my own devices um and I would um I mean, I was a very early reader. I remember I read, so I read Jane Eyre when I was seven because I was, I was always, I know, and I bet, because I begged to be allowed to read the books on my mum's shelves. And she was like, no, you're too young. And it became this amazing forbidden fruit. So I think I had to sneak Jane Eyre and read it. And I, I had, um, I remember having, um, these two babysitters, teenage babysitters, Imogen and Jane, and I loved the word Imogen. Anyway, um, and they were they were not believing that I had read it, and they were quizzing me. You know, where did Jane meet Mister Rochester? And I was answering the the questions because I had read it, and I really identified with Jane. And um, but I read everything. Like I was just a voracious, ridiculously voracious reader although it's interesting when you say stories although Jane Eyre was important to me as a story um I and although I actually yeah I did so I, I could get drawn into a narrative but I was quite fussy about the sort of stories I liked so I used to have this thing when I was little of no talking animals animals talking is not realistic hmm. um but I, I sort of got over that eventually. Uh, so, so basically, very important, very early on. You said you could follow a, a plot or a narrative, but you said it was interesting. I said stories. So can I, was it something about like the words themselves? Because you say you were like making a list of definitions and stuff, which 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 implies that there was, uh, that you actually had a fan, fascination in the sort of, in like language for its own sake as a kind of end in itself i is that is that true was there something about the sounds or the meanings or or something that was drawing you in as well do you think yeah definitely um i think uh that then feeds into me being a poet where there's something about loving that the chiming and rhyming and rhythm and being compelled by that and not necessarily um focusing on the content actually or, or content I, I mean it's complicated because actually I would say content is as important to me as form now but perhaps when I first encountered words then 
because I didn't always understand what was going on, maybe because it was adult content. Um, although I think I did understand Jane, um, or, or I didn't understand where a poem was going. Nonetheless, just the excitement of the sound. And I think so um, because I'm so I'm autistic, although I wasn't diagnosed till I was an, an adult, till I was 42, five years ago. Um, I think I probably, I think the thing I'm describing to you, actually, is, I mean, it's called, it's it's a condition, apparently. And I think, how could this be a condition? Um, hyperlexia, um, the, the, the condition of um, reading very precociously and very fluently, although not necessarily understanding the content. And I remember there was a particular test um, that we would be given at school called the Chanel test. And it was <laughs> sounds very fancy. It does, doesn't it? Like, oh, put this perfume on. I don't think it was spelt like that. Although I, I, I have looked it up actually. I can't, it was so quite, and it was, uh, it was to see what you basically what your reading comprehension was. And I always got like top marks, forty out of forty or whatever, kind of earlier than I should have done. But again, you kind of think, really, how could that be labelled as a medical condition? reading really early something is wrong <laughs> um but it's it's connects to that that um to an to an autistic thing i think of being stimulated by particular um oh i can't think of another word ironically then stimuli um stimulated by particular stimuli which in my case were um yeah words and then that leads to a fascination or led to a fascination for me by the time I got to university and encountered literary theory and that question of how far do words actually describe the world how far are words things in themselves how do words and the things they describe relate um I mean I became fascinated by that and swept up in it because it probably it's so fundamental to my being I I beat the world world through words and yet part of me maybe as as often wanted to escape that because I recognize there are other ways of encountering the world. Can you remember any texts or apart from uh, Jane Eyre not to I'm not to dismiss Jane Eyre but like I'm just as well as Jane Eyre I'm wondering if there are were there any others as you were growing up that fed into that it, it's. It, I know it's always difficult when you read a lot because it's like you kind of yes, every, to a certain extent, everything. Right? It's like yeah, I was hoovering up everything that was near to me. But were there any that you found yourself sort of returning to, or you know, you've talked about like the chiming and rhyming of, of phrases. I wonder if there were any bit, you know, lines or bits of them that particularly you found sort of like resonating in your head, or you you know, look back on and remember were there what, what i'm just trying to get a sense of the other other books in everyone has a sort of their own little personal canon of books that were kind of key for them i think in their development and i wonder if they're what, what as we've got jane Eyre, what were some of the other ones you think yeah oh i like that as a question okay so the line <laughs> a line that's coming into my head and this came from my mum reading this poem to me so that Tennyson's the lady of Shalott she left the web she left the room she took no she left the web she left the loom she took three paces through the room the mirror mm. but that 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 rings that resonates that sticks and stuck um 
it's interesting there because we didn't normally have, we didn't often have the idyllic mother reads to daughter moments. But actually, we we importantly at, at some stage must have done. And um, after my mum had died, I found in the attic lots of rhyming poems that she had written that she wrote on a, mainly to her dad actually, and she'd write them on occasions like his birthday. And um, so there would be these occasional poems. And it's she didn't talk about that. And it's really interesting because I grew up to write topical poems, rhyming topical poems. Mm. So it was up there. Um, but in terms of other books, I mean, I uh, saw there was a lot of Enie Blyton. There was a lot of Enie Blyton. And I kind of think, oh, dear, is that that's not a good thing, is it? It's, it just kind of internalised some... Uh, negative stuff in me maybe but I went through all of it the magic far away tree the famous five secret seven again they were books on my mum's shelves and then I discovered the chalet school books and read all of those a school in the the, the Austrian Alps yeah not 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 related to the to the oh no that's the Chanel test I was going to say that was those uh, Chanel's and Chanel no yeah. um so what were the Chanel school books because those ones I, I you know I read the famous five I read the secret seven but I, I what were the Chanel school books oh yeah so they were by a writer called Eleanor M Brent Dyer uh, who was from South Shields actually uh, near me in the northeast and um she had been in some way involved with an actual school in the Austrian Alps that had then, during the Second World War, had to be exiled to Jersey. And there was this... So this is very much not about language. So the language came through poetry. It came through, yeah, things like The Lady of Shalott and also A.A. Milne, Christopher Robin and Alice going down to the palace. That doesn't scan, but it was something like that, wasn't it? And Kit Wright, mm. funny poems. Um, but... Yeah, this, the chalet school, it, it had such a strong sense in it of, um, of of what was decent. There was this idea of decency and decency wasn't necessarily being good because the most decent characters were the ones who would sometimes break the rules but the, and, and they would be a bit hasty and a bit impulsive, but they would then apologise for it and they, it would be about fair play and owning up if you'd done things wrong and not being sneaky. Um, and um, I suppose they're not bad values to imbibe are they thinking about it not as bad as probably what was underneath some of Enid Blyton's stuff um, but I was actually I was completely drawn into and, and compelled by them and then as you say because I was a voracious reader it is then hard to pick specific things out until later I didn't return to things I hate reading things more than once apart from Jane Eyre um, so I'd probably be quite shocked if I returned to the Secret Seven books or, or the Famous Five books. Um, but I read, you know, girls were supposed to read pony books. That was fine. It was still reading matter. I wasn't that bothered about ponies, but I read every pony book. Oh, hang on. Sorry, there is a key book. Um, Diana Wynne-Jones, um, her, do you... Do you know her work? I, I, I yes, and I, I've got, I've even got a book of her, um, of her n- non-fiction on my shelves as well. Her essays, yeah. I, I, I've not, I've not read. I realise there is a lot of Dana Wynne Jones to read, so I'm 
always a bit sort of when I say, yeah, I like her stuff. I've read, th- I, I, I've read three of her books. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, she was she was very as a fantasy writer. Um, this particular book, Charmed Life, is another book that I returned to. I must have read it when I was eleven or twelve. Um, when people talked about J.K. Rowling, I was like, yeah, but have you read Diana Wynne Jones? Because there was something about how she blended. The real and the surreal or realism and a and a magical world that just connected with me. I struggle with fantasy, pure fantasy, for various reasons. Um, not least is, and this feels like a really bad reason, um, when there are many, many unfamiliar names. So we've got, you know, I'll just make them up a bit by Galadriel, is she from mm. Lord of the Rings? You know, going off to um, uh, Hobbit land and uh, Sauron's. It's like, oh no, that's already three unfamiliar words. And that now I can't picture the words and I can't connect them to anything else. And therefore, the possible connections have proliferated in my brain. So Sauron, that's like a Sauron. It's like someone called Ron. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, um, we haven't got very far through the sentence, which is painful to me because I read so quickly. Um, and I've got stuck. So as I say, it feels like the worst reason in the world to struggle with particular sorts of fantasy novel. Um, but there we are that's something about how I react to language stopping me (laughs) in a certain genre um but Diana Wynne-Jones as with Doctor Who and probably any of the kind of almost fantasy stuff that I like is set first in a recognizable real world um and and then sets off into other other worlds that already exist rather than I, I noticed when they made the uh, animated version of Howl's Moving Castle, uh, they removed all the stuff from her original book that is set in the real world. Because in the film, as in the book, there's like an extra, there's this doorway that can take you to different places. And there's one there's one place that in the movie, you know, there's there's one bit that don't go to the one that's black on the dial. Don't don't go to that place in the doorway. And then in the movie, eventually they they go there and it's just another bit of fantasy. But um, in the book, I was having seen the movie first. I was very surprised that the, 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 the door opened when they went to that to 1980s Swansea and 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 they just went they just went to Wales. And I was like, oh, this wasn't in the Japanese anime version. I don't remember them. Wow. And it was good. It was really good. But it just was suddenly very mundane. And I was like, oh, I was in Swansea in the 80s. I remember this. This was... This couldn't have been more surprising. Um, so, yeah, she did have that wonderful sense of just suddenly... So, and And it was also made the very familiar... Very weird. I Swansea in the 1980s had never felt more strange. I was like, "Wow, wow, this is what an odd place this is." And actually, so I've never, so I've not seen the film of Howl's Moving Castle, and maybe it didn't appeal to me for that reason. Nor read that particular book, but now I want to read the book. Um, actually, so yes, there. And it's isn't that a lovely? So I don't know. It sounds like you might sometimes. I mean, I was a completist around Amy Blyton's Secret Seven and Famous Five books. Oh, and the Mallory Towers books and the St. Clair's books. Um, 
and around um, the chalet school books. But I don't think I've ever been a completist since. And I'm really happy if I kind of uh, discover an author and I'll read a couple of books and then I'll sort of forget about them because I'm easily mm. distracted. And then it's exciting when you're like, oh, oh, I've got a book by them that I didn't know about, hadn't read. Brilliant. I can add that to the list sort of thing. Yeah, it's like finding a whisper gold in your coat pocket. You just go, oh. Oh, nice past me for leaving this uneaten. Um, can you? Were there any books? I suppose as as you went on as well. I I wonder. Um, for me and for a few people, there's. Uh, I mean, you were reading adult books quite early, but I wonder if there were any. Like for me, there was a moment when I first read Lord of the Flies, where I got something different from that than maybe some books I'd read before. And I was like, oh, books can do this. And I wonder if as you got older, you had any where you said by the time you got to university, you had some really nice things where, you know, there were questions about, you know, how much does a a word refer to the thing it refers to? And what if they get untied from the things they refer to and things like that? I wonder if there were any um, poems or books as you got older that, 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 that sort of like opened you up to some of the different possibilities of language or stories oh yeah I, I think I think for a long time I was reading and I was hearing music and I was aware that there were certain important elements that I just wasn't getting but I seem to have this and I don't know where it came from this faith that eventually this stuff would drop into place and some of that very much was about how humans interact, particularly how adults interact and why they do things. I I can't think now of a specific example, but I did. I would certainly, because once I found the library when I was 13, that was it. And I was off into Harold. Oh, yeah. A lot of trashy sex and shopping novels at that point. Harold Robbins, um, Jackie Collins, Jilly Cooper um, and you know, the actual language was simple, the plots were simple, but why really the people in these plots were doing things? Why, you know, Tabitha was going off with Rupert Campbell Black, the horse rider, instead of staying with the nice bloke that she'd started off with, was a mystery. And that gradually began to drop into place. I would like to think that probably doing A-level English literature um probably helped some of that process and and possibly then also hinted it a bit because as soon as you're writing an essay about for example uh oscar wilde's um picture of dorian gray and you're i remember being utterly obsessed at that point so i'm kind of 17 18 sixth form a levels my my key question which seemed to crop up in these the books are set texts um was about appearance versus reality and i i then brought that into everything i was like yes oh the world is so false look at these superficial appearances but underneath there's something else you know the the mm. moment where most teenagers discover um holden caulfield yeah Catcher in the Rye and go, oh, you're all phonies. Um, so it was kind of that, although I don't think I read Catcher in the Rye at that point, probably a bit later. Um, but John Dunn as a poet, it was so he was such a brilliant poet for me, I think, to end up studying as an A-level set text because he asks questions about appearance versus reality, but he also very much 
draws out a, a metaphor to its furthest point that it can go. Mm. Um, and, and he's very much a poet of ideas um, as well as feeling. And for me, so again, it's interesting. I don't think I'm talking about language here particularly. I'm very much talking about what language can do, how language could how language could reveal the world. Mm. Um, but yeah, John Donne doing both ideas and feelings together, that has become more and more important to me as I've gone along. And maybe I don't think now, generally, I was going to say, um, so I, I don't really like poetry that baffles me, um, but I am happy to uncover the rules that are dictating why a particular poem might be baffling but obscurity for what seems like its own sake has very much not been my thing because I've always or I've begun to rely on language to as I say reveal the world rather than obscure it. Can you talk about how a lot how you you know because it's 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 one thing to to read lots and I I know lots of people who read lots and have absolutely no desire whatsoever to to to, to create their own uh, or at least they profess that they don't have any uh, desire to do any writing themselves so what made you or what got you into wanting to you know uh, to, to do your own writing and how did that start for you and what kind of uh, work were you producing for yourself yeah, it, it was it was little poems. It was doing the chiming and rhyming. It was a poem sitting in the car to entertain my siblings hmm. about a little fly. I'm a little fly and here I go, smash into the car window. All my blood and guts pour out. I am dead without a doubt. It's not a very <laughs> nice way for me to die, but I'm only a humble fly. My friends and family will wonder where I've gone. It's a good job I've got my labelled undies on. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, it was weird to realise I still remembered that. I think in the past I've been asked, you know, what did I write early on? And somehow that was still in my head. I was probably seven or eight. Um, and it was just enjoying the rhyme, enjoying the ridiculous image. But I also, I remember I wrote a poem about the Falklands War um so I was like seven in 1982 so again this was like a seven-year-old poem it was something about sand and it was quite an earnest poem and I remember showing my mum it to her complete indifference um, oh. <laughs> yes so I, I, that yeah my mum has played an important role in my reading and writing life but sort of tangentially accidentally um and then um when I got the opportunity during GCSEs I would I would write poems and then I started a school magazine and had a lot of and it was very much about fun and provoking people so writing um I mean looking back I would not do this now but I wrote a really mean review of the school band but it was also a funny review (laughs) definitely something about getting a reaction and then I would write these really long topical rhyming poems so there was one about John Major and the Conservative Party conference and um yeah, so there was there was this thing of funny rhyming couplets and we can do something with that. But I didn't, of course, I didn't realise that could in any way start a writing career. Never mind, I mean, I love the neatness of 
you know, you could say a 16 year old me messing about writing topical poems to go in the school magazine at 16. And then uh, by 2000, so 30, uh, yeah, by the time I was 30 odd, I was writing topical poems on Radio 4, topical rhyming poems. Like there was a direct link and that is very satisfying. Um, but I, I would not have predicted that. Um, and actually, in some ways, that is my default setting. Clearly, I can write topical rhyming funny poems till the cows come home. And in a way, my journey, my struggle as a writer has been to try and do something else because I knew there were other things I wanted to say in other forms. Um, but I remember writing a story again for GCSE English and it was something to do with a girl who was taken advantage by a man who was metaphorically a vampire, but maybe not actually a vampire. And uh, my English teacher, who I loved and who loved me and my work, put at the end something like, yes, this is quite juvenile, though. And I was like, oh, juvenile. Oh, the pain of that. It's stung so much. But actually, I think what he was seeing was my lack of knowledge of how humans and the world worked. So I, in that respect, I feel like could have softened the blow a little bit. Like... <laughs> juvenile it really did actually put put me off um i mean i was easily put off because i didn't have a strong internal sense of what i was doing or why i was doing it or how i might do it or a writing community or any of those things for quite for quite a long time till my late 20s um but i it was hard to have faith that i could say much beyond as i say that default setting of rhyming topical coupleting can can you can you talk can we go into that a little bit because I, I sort of don't I, I I'm just sort of want to be careful to not for you 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 talk about it as your default mode but for many people many experienced poets the idea of having to produce something to a brief relatively quickly that somehow responds to something that's just happened I mean I suppose all poetry to an extent is responding to something that's happened I mean I, but um not necessarily something that's uh, uh, current affairsy. I-, I wonder if you could talk about. Do you do you have a process for? Have you become aware of your your process, or is it so automatic you don't ha- have one? And and what are some of the advantages and and disadvantage and downsides of that format? Because I I I, I suspect it's it's. It's an area that um you know a few not- people have notably uh, done well in but um that not a lot of people even it's a format that like a lot of people just never have a go at right they never never write one let alone do a bunch and do them on the radio and actually perform them and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've learned from uh doing that oh yeah okay um and yeah I probably do I'm I'm a bit dismissive of it as my default mode and because it comes so easily but actually and and when I've um, used that mode, so I'll talk about how I do it, because, yes, that's a really nice thing to have to unpack. Um, when, when I've done that as a poet for conferences, so I've maybe had to sum up an entire day uh, at, by the end of the conference and perform the poem I've written. I call it a magic trick, um, but it's a magic trick I very much enjoy being able to do really um so essentially i will um initially jot down some notes and ideas around whatever the topic is um 
So actually, I'll talk about uh, I'll talk about it as a conference poem. So if I'm following a, a conference, I've actually done this um, on uh, um, colostomy nurses. Who knew that could be a conference? Uh, well, I suppose it makes sense. Of course, colostomy nurses need to have conferences. And they did. And I was their poet in residence for it. Um, so I would jot down perhaps key images that arose early on. So it'd be really helpful if someone sort of used a metaphor or if the conference had a metaphor. Like early on, they would go, you know, oh, this 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 conference is, a, is about bridging the gaps. So instantly my poem would have a metaphorical theme or maybe it's just something someone would say early on bridging the gaps and then I would take notes of what people were saying and I would just instantly turn them into rhyming couplets because my brain works like that very easily and then I would kind of put meta notes next to the rhyming notes and they would be reminders of things to come back to and then I would simultaneously be kind of trying to work out well what images keep arising so perhaps everyone at the colostomy nurses conference is talking about higher themes of leadership because they're probably wanting to have autonomy but often doctors are the ones who make decisions so they're thinking about autonomy a lot and maybe there's an image that exemplifies that so that kind of alongside the rolling reportage in rhyme and picking up these images so perhaps somebody else says something about oh oh yes we need to make sure doctors and colostomy nurses communicate um but, but there's a big gap there oh so then in my brain that goes back to bridging the gap and i'm like oh there's another gap to bridge or whatever and i bring this the central simile or metaphor back um so my brain is kind of doing at this point two things at least it's doing uh, reporting facts but turning them into rhyme and it's also doing picking up on an image and making it repeat to give a poem some coherence and then it's doing a third thing and this is the magic trick bit that I love and maybe this doesn't happen as often when I'm doing a, a, a commissioned poem for Radio 4 when I used to work for Saturday Live but it does come in when I'm doing commissioned poems for the verb on Radio 3 because there's almost an implicit permission to do it. And that is picking up on what's unsaid or what's invisible, what's hovering somewhere just outside of the, the spoken and declared narrative. And, and some of that in conference poeming I get from talking to the delegates, but some of it just comes from picking up the mood in the room, how an audience responds to something. A speaker's facial expression when they're talking, you know, maybe they're a bit cynical about the idea that not doctors will give nurses autonomy. And somehow I kind of weave that in. So that's a, a mood, it's a tone, it's an energy, it's an unsaid and it's this other layer, the third layer. And that has to go in there somehow. That has to be woven in. Otherwise, it won't feel like a true poem. Um, so I suppose I did do that to some extent in the Saturday Live Radio 4 poems, which came from topics that I was given on the Friday that were going to be on the show. And then I would write that on the Friday night and add some twiddly bits during the show on the Saturday Um but there was less opportunity to do that. So it's a weaving together of all these threads, ideas, feelings, moods, um, with the, the structure of basically rhyming and some images uh, and, and then trying to tie it all up together. So when I say that, I'm like, flipping heck, no wonder my brain was very tired after a day as a conference poet, because it was using my, I would say, my working memory, my my hippocampus my amygdala any bit of the brain that's involved in writing or thinking or feeling all working together and for someone like me 
whose brain is quirky, uh, neurodivergent, has bits that fire, you know, unpredictably. Um, I get bored easily. I fit a, an ADHD, uh, ADHD profile, although I don't have that diagnosis. Um, for my brain to be working in unity all together, to have all its attention focused on one thing, but that's actually multiple things. Um, I mean, that's a deep state of flow. It's very satisfying. And um, gosh, when I talk about it, I'm thinking I need to, need to do more of it. But it was very exhausting. Can I... The one thing I want to, I was going to say, can I? I'm going to attempt to do it and then you can tell me no. <laughs> but um, what the question I want to ask is, now this sort of plays in, you brought up neurodivergence and I, I suppose for a lot of people who have, if not stereotyped ideas of what autism or what an autistic person is, can and can't do or is and isn't, what you've just described involved, you talked about... <laughs> picking up conversational implicature, like people's inferring a difference between what someone's saying and how they're feeling based on their body language, tone and facial expressions, um, picking up ambient mood and then working that into a poem so that, you know, if it lands, I'm imagining that at the end, a lot of people, it can be one very funny and two very powerful because people feel like you've kind of gone inside their brain with a kind of like a a, a, a flashlight and and written down all the secret things that they were thinking and not saying um but that sort of flies in the face of what a lot of people assume autism is you know what typifies it you know this idea you know would say well surely if you're autistic this idea that you're going to be asked to okay go and pick up a bunch of emotional nuance and behaviors uh, that are under the surface and bring them to light and write about them and kind of engage with what you think other people might want or need so you're using I mean what you're talking about is using huge amounts of empathy and reading of body language and modeling other people's uh, uh, emotional experiences Could, would you be able to speak to that a little bit because it you know I, I think that to many people they'll think that <laughs> the person that would be most stressful for and who would be least qualified and able to do that would be an autistic person yes and they would be wrong <laughs> and here's why um because i think i've just described a really autistic process done autistically um so first of all um Actually, well, first of all, I want to say autism is a developmental condition. And that word developmental is absolutely crucial because I've talked about kind of early on being really confused by the differences between appearances and reality and really wanting to understand them and how how it could be that someone might say one thing and then appear to mean another um, and over the years and over experience of people and reading and talking and thinking my understanding of that has developed so it wasn't an automatic process but certainly developmentally I have got to a state of reasonable understanding of of many of the things that make humans tick so that's one thing but the second thing is it is of course um, I'm saying of course but of course to me um it, it's not the case that autistic people don't pick up on 
these nuances, these um, extra verbal and non-verbal things, um, energies, moods, vibes, these vague things, um, they, they generally will indeed pick up on them and absorb them very much. But what often might not happen is um, the processing of that stuff may not all um, be integrated. So it may be that this stuff is picked up actually at some level by an autistic person and they walk into a room and have a vague sense of unease um, and they're feeling the unease but they may or may not even be able to recognise that they have a sense of unease because they may not be that good at reading their internal signals and then they might not fully be able to work out well Auntie Margaret over here is just slagged off Auntie Joan over there and they've got a historic feud and um, <laughs> something's just kicked off and everybody's a bit shocked at what's been said. Um, they may not pick up and process that because that may involve, you know, um, processing particular information or it may involve integrating that with other information. So it's still there. This stuff is very much felt and there, which is why, in fact, um, Many autistic people um, say that they experience hyper empathy. They are really tuned into um, moods in a room or picking up on other people's feelings, but they may not then kind of quite be able to put together what's happening and why. And actually, I think for me, in the process of focusing on writing a poem, <laughs> so that is mm. basically. The, the poem becomes a hyper-processing device. So whereby, whereas I might not usually put all these things together, actually, I have a mode with which to do it, which is kind of a, a bit of a privilege, really. I mean, I, and also it would be very tiring if I went into every social situation that I exist in and <laughs> processed it by writing a poem. But maybe... <laughs> I would be better if I did, because I'd uh, yeah deal with certain situations better. But it's so, so actually, I feel like I have described a really autistic process, as I say, done in a very autistic way. That's re that's really really interesting. Yeah, because I guess y you have license to put your entire energy into re into quote unquote reading the room. Like that's your that's your job where the way that you you write these poems is to is okay like we're going to we're going to be doing empathy today and you're going to get and you actually get to make notes and then as you say make meta notes and and uh yeah, that's really fascinating and i guess what you're saying there about people sometimes having a sense of you know picking up on a vibe in a in a room without really knowing why can give that sense of I always think of it as being a bit sort of like invasion of the body snatchers where there's people are acting in a way that is not is not congruent with the feelings that they are put being put out and that's often you often get that at, you know say a, a wedding or something even if it's just that people are a bit bored and then they're smiling and going and you're like oh why why these people don't want to be here why are they being here and why are they acting like this and you might you not even be able to consciously articulate that that's the problem you have you just get a sense of sort of uncanniness um yes i love that i love the wedding as an example actually because that a wedding specifically is quite an important example to me 
of that incongruence sometimes between oh look here's a happy occasion a happy couple this is all good and the actual feelings um and i how i've kind of dealt with that is um so sometimes i have felt weddings where there is not that incongruence and i've called it the um the magic cloud of love <laughs> I approve of weddings where there is a magic cloud of love and I generally disapprove of weddings where there is not a magic cloud of love. And I am, it's me articulating precisely that thing that you're saying. And I do wonder if maybe some neurotypical people are less, they care less about whether, <laughs> about this incongruence. It bothers them less because they've not got this kind of, parcel of thoughts and feelings that are sitting there quite heavy that are kind of discomfort unease as you say uncanniness I love that the gap between well uncanniness comes from not feeling quite at home doesn't it originally unheimlich not in your home maybe you feel less at home as someone who is um, neurodivergent to start with if you can't quite predict what people are going to do or if you can't quite work out what mood they're in or if there is this disjoint between setting and mood um so yeah magic cloud of love at weddings i've oh. definitely been to two two or three and once i was asked to do a poem at a wedding and i did the poem about the magic cloud of love and luckily there was a magic cloud of love at that wedding oh for you <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be difficult to to have to read a poem that sort of where the where the 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 auguries the wedding tea leaves were bad you know everyone's looking to you the poet kate fox to say have you you the 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 um the sage has has, has read whether this poem is whether this uh, wedding is blessed that must be a relief it's like the groundhog coming out and whether there's a shadow <laughs> yes um I wonder if you could talk a bit about um because you have as well as you know performing and I've you know we've been at events together and p performed and you've performed on on the radio and you do lots of poetry and you do can you talk a, a, a bit about um uh your you have but you have written uh in in longer forms you have written stuff other than um your your uh topical uh poems oh and i'm just gonna like open it up to you which you'd prefer to deal with uh first but like um either um you know your uh like the solo show format the 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 way one does a, an entire show or um your uh your prose your your text yeah. okay thank you um well i think i think our previous discussion has helped have the context for me talking about the form of my solo shows versus um some of my prose writing awesome. um so basically, the solo shows that I've done, um, well, so I did a, um, a couple of series for Radio 4, and they were basically my stand-up shows um, turned into Radio 4 stand-up. One about was one about me not wanting to have children, and one was about me not thinking that I was middle class, being in between working class and middle class. And I was determined to do them in the form of stand-up comedy, which is a form I have massively struggled with throughout my life. And they ended with a poem, um, but the, uh, throughout, yeah, it was mainly stand-up. Um, and actually, what was missing from those shows um, was the thing that I talked about in the conference poem that is the 
the third strand, the unsaid, the invisible, the nuanced, the floaty energy thing, wasn't really in those shows. They were kind of, for me, they were quite surfacey. But they addressed an issue I wanted to address um, from a, a kind of slightly unusual standpoint. I mean, still not that many women talk about not wanting to have children. So that was satisfying. But the form itself was not massively satisfying, only in the sense of I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, whereas the two solo shows that I have that I'm kind of would love to tour uh, if it wasn't still COVID times and mm. the idea of kind of having many things cancelled is just a bit depressing so I'm going to wait a bit and see if I can revive them but both of those add in that third strand because they have more poetry in them they have more spoken word in the first one called where there's muck there's bras was about northern women um it was a commission from the great exhibition of the north um which was a big thing in newcastle in 2018 where george osborne the then chancellor wanted to show that culture could exist in the north um but the commission <laughs> yeah who knew what <laughs> thing um the commission allowed me to play with form because it gave me the money for a director and an actor and it was quite powerpoint heavy so there was an element of stand up lecture there was an element of taking us into surreal places because i got my actor um to be hilda baker for example a music hall comedian who kind of popped up as a sort of ghost of the show and a ghost of the north and in one version of the show she was really there joey uh the actor and then in another version um we did videos so that i could tour the show solo and in that version, I also did poems that were more what I would call poemy poems and poems that were more spoken word. Um, and so it was a real mishmash of forms. It was a hybrid, as many spoken word shows are, I think, a hybrid. And that hybrid allowed me to speak in different modes and different registers. And it felt very me. The other show that I'm developing and that has existed in various versions before and during the pandemic and again I would love to tour um, it's a show called Bigger on the Inside and it explores the history of Doctor Who autistic activism although I would now like it to look more broadly at neurodiversity activism um, and my life story and again that has been a hybrid of stand-up spoken word poetry surreal bits um, powerpoint Um, and, and those two shows feel closer to my brain body getting to express itself in a way that is reasonably authentic to how I think feel and process the world whereas um, (laughs) my prose book uh, where there's book there's bras which a publisher um, Harper North asked me um, basically would I do a book not of the show really but a book about northern women inspired by the show Um, so I did that over the second lockdown and I'm going to sound really dismissive of, of it, um, which is a pity because I would quite like people to buy it and read it. Um, <laughs> but essentially, it's just, you know, I trained as a radio journalist. I've always done topical, funny writing. And as we've seen, I kind of dismiss it a bit as my default. It is cheerily, breezily written in chapters, you know, Hildas of the North, politicians, sportswomen, writers, stage and screen. There's an interesting thing underneath it, which is, my P- I did a PhD, which I'll talk about in a sec, because that was my other major piece of writing. Um, but, you know, I, I have some strong ideas about 
northernness and class and gender and they are woven through subtly um but as a piece of writing it was not particularly interesting to write and um there are some definite highlights in it. I would always want to direct people to the last page or the bit I wrote about Barbara Hepworth, the sculptor, um, or some other bits that are really good. Um, but mostly it's just quite functional writing. Um, it's funnier than a lot of writing that purports to be funny. Um, I'll say that for it. Uh, but it's not the mode that I would... Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, I won't especially want to write a book in that mode again. Um, my PhD, I... Um, looked at comedy, stand-up comedy as a means of resisting particular identities, particularly northernness, gender and class. And I was determined that I wanted that PhD to be funny because I had this thing about you can't, if you were going to say that humour can do things and change things and change people's minds and have <laughs> And then whenever you and then and then whenever you come to do that, you then don't use humour. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it would really be really point. hypocritical. Exactly, and you'd be under. And actually, of course, the reason generally PhDs are not funny is because there's this particular authoritative academic mode that is privileged above all other modes. But my other big thing was we privilege seriousness above humour as a means of conveying information or feeling but actually it's an arbitrary hierarchy there does not have to be a seriousness first humor second hierarchy we've just sort of accepted it and i do not accept it and so my phd was um by dint of a, a dialogic second voice who would pop up and interrupt and probably just be irritating rather than be funny but at least there was some use <laughs> of humor um and so I kind of was able to play with form and that was so so satisfying and I had the intellectual justification for doing so you know there was lots of kind of I'm quite interested in well still this goes back to my interest in literary theory I was interested in how how different modes of language and writing different registers um of, of writing can carry authority or not so just i i want to i i i don't want to put words in your mouth so i'm not going to but i am going to pop up here as the irritating dialogic second voice and propose something which you can sort of um to the extent to which you agree with or think is nonsense you know you're free to say but it does sound like in the works that you feel were more you i i i wonder if either the circumstances under which you were producing the work or you yourself um you were allowed to sort of give the work teeth um and maybe take a few more risks is that a reason um, is that the sort of inference reasonably correct i think that's absolutely spot on yeah definitely and actually i was also allowed to sorry i allowed myself to show a full range of my thinking like I love mm. myself to show that I'm clever <laughs> which is normally quite a big like growing up in the family that I grew up in my mum back to my mum again would say you know oh you're too clever by half don't be too big for your own boots there wasn't a and it's interesting I'm, a, I'm aware so I think of your the circle of poets Tim that you kind of um like aisle 16 but I, I i so i've read work by or the group of poets you were at university with say and it feels like there was this sense of a group of peers who would encourage each other 
to encourage each other in I mean you're all kind of funny and interesting and accessible and great writers but intellectual prowess was okay it was encouraged I think I think that I think that's true but as well as just encouraging we all met up to write together as well like that's what I think back is the amount of time that we would socialize by meeting up and writing which is like incredibly nerdy but you know we we would do we would do that all the time every week and we would go on a retreat once a year and and write um so yeah there was definitely that but but you know we yeah and we but we would you know in the most practical way we would also you know meet up and socialize by writing as well so I think there was definitely a lot of that yeah Mm, and actually it feels to me there's something there it took me quite a while to find and it's a really important thing for for writers actually which is kind of partly being taken seriously by other writers and taking yourself seriously as a writer and like when I say that in the context of often being a writer of humour then that sounds really earnest and but actually it has been crucial to me in the last few years being able to develop more as the writer that I am and I would also add into that uh, as the neurodivergent writer that I am I mean my brain is much more lit up when all of it is going (laughs) rather than just a couple of little bits of it um but when I worked as a radio journalist not many bits were needed when I worked when I did gigs as a stand-up comic I know there are brilliantly inventive, multi-layered, linguistically challenging uh, stand-up comics, but I wasn't one of them. (laughs) I was just really doing quite basic jokes in an attempt to say something, in an attempt to subvert something. But I hadn't found, I hadn't got a grounding or a foundation or permission to do it in the way that probably best suited me and how my brain works. That's a that's I think that's a really nice dis- distinction that you're saying that you feel like the it's not that the medium doesn't have space for that invention but f- for the way that you were engaging with it you sort of struggled to make that happen because I'm just thinking that yeah my experience of doing stand up was always and I, I don't blame stand up for this but, but that really I was sort of trying to sort of uh have my, the idea my idea of developing a set was sort of allowing myself to be sort of hammered out into shape on the anvil of sort of public opinion and rather than me really doing stuff that i felt was me and 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 i could get very good at at you know having timings and you know when to leave a pause and you know when to kind of like add a little thing that maybe once was a a spontaneous joke but you've discovered you can just it appears to occur to you every set um and and you get the same laugh at the same time and and things like that but i i i just maybe i, I wanted to ask um a, can i ask about doctor who please indeed always happy to talk about doctor who so so can you give a, a bit of a context um for the very i mean very cleverly named i just want to give um, kudos to the title bigger on the inside well well done slightly jealous but um very good can can we and i i'm i promise i will restrain my the little imp of, of the the little, little imp in my head whenever i'm talking to a whovian immediately has just appeared there and is nudging prodding me with its little trident and saying 
refer to the protagonist as Doctor Who. And I'm not going to do that. Um, could you could you talk to me a bit about um, your interest in the show? How you sort of used it in this show? And I, I, I'm going to, you know, this may not be true, but I think um, people who are neurodivergent in one way or another are not overrepresented, but they are well represented within the Whovian community. And I wondered if finally you might have any thoughts about uh, why that might be. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, in terms of being a Whovian, I have to say, I, it is only, I'm not the sort who is able to um, come up with interesting facts about what the Silurians were doing in 1972 so I always feel a bit of fake in that way and I do know to refer to the Doctor as the Doctor rather than Doctor Who of course um, but that's really only to not annoy other Whovians um, so I um, I suppose in a similar way to because you'd asked about foundational books and thinking about it um, for me there was foundational TV and that was um, Blackadder for humour um, and then Doctor Who for, I suppose, world building, world creating, being in a world. Um, so I watched, um, oh, my mum is about to come into this story again. <laughs> she, was really, she was, of course, really important to my creative self. I was going to say I watched with my mum on a Thursday night from the age of seven. Uh, Doctor Who. I remember the regeneration of Peter Davison from Tom Baker, but mainly Peter Davison was my doctor. I loved the episodes. I can see looking back, they were probably, um, it was not necessarily a vintage time for Who, um, but I loved them. And then I watched, um, they did kind of reruns of classic Who um, from John Pertwee onwards. I can't remember what time, I feel like they were in a daytime. And I don't know why I would have been in. Uh, but anyway, I watched those very young. Um, Doctor Who just felt like one of my shows. Um, and I can now retrospectively possibly say, um, so to answer the question about why neurodivergent people might, you know, if you turn up, not that I have yet been to a Doctor Who convention, but um, it's fairly safe to say that um, there's a very high artistic quotient there. Um, I mean, I think the Doctor themselves are a neurodivergent figure. As an alien, they um, perceive the rules of Earth differently, but they are very bound to Earth. They are possibly half Earthling or maybe not, depending on whose mythology we're going by today. Um, and um, they, they are a fish out of water, but they are passionately concerned about justice and fairness. Um, I think some doctors have been more more neurodivergent than others. If I was diagnosing, I think um, Jodie Whittaker's doctor was as much ADHD if she was at all autistic. Peter Capaldi's doctor I would say was, to my mind, fairly autistic. Uh, and Matt Smith's. David Tennant, you know, as soon as you've got more of a, a manic quality coming in, not that mania is a is a symptom of ADHD, but something about that expansiveness, um, then I think um, you're talking more ADHD type traits. So David Tennant, Tom Baker, Geordie Whittaker. Um, and 
I, I think neurodivergent people therefore identify with one of their own, essentially. I think it's almost as simple as that to me. I know there's something important about alien versus um, not alien um, and otherness versus usness. Um, but for me, as with Diana Wynne-Jones, Doctor Who is about, it's that conjunction of real stuff realism that we recognize i mean that's why for me russell t davis is my favorite doctor who writer he was doing something powerful and topical and speaking to the now and describing the now with his um rose tyler played by billy piper who's there on a estate in london and doesn't have many opportunities to escape and then suddenly the world is open to her you know arguably doctor who as social mobility discuss um and i'm so excited that he's coming back because i feel like there is so i'm gonna now claim a lot for doctor who but I think as a nation, we could do with some catharsis around Brexit stuff and COVID stuff. And I think Russell T. Davis has done that in his recent work, um, particularly It's a Sin and um, what to say Years and Years. Have I made that up? Was it called The Years? His, um... I'm I'm sorry, I don't I don't I, I, I don't know. I know it. No, it's a sin, but I didn't know the other. Uh, uh... Well, it has, it has the word years in anyway. Uh, anyway, so he's doing topical, cathartic stuff. I think he can do that for me, Doctor Who. The idea of bigger on the inside, the TARDIS is bigger on the inside. Well, autistic people for years have been diagnosed by their behaviours, their externals. And yet inside we are vast cavernous cathedrals of empathy, thought, joy, complication, um, and I really wanted to reflect that. And the TARDIS is too good a metaphor not to nick, basically. Um, but the show itself has had several iterations and is in no way... Like like the like the Doctor themselves. It has regenerated yeah. exactly multiple times. Um, and uh, yeah, sometimes in the pandemic, I thought it had died completely. Um, there was a hairy moment where basically I'd been booked to do the show for... Rural touring. So rural touring are an organisation that puts quite small scale shows into rural venues like village halls and so on. And I was so glad they'd booked a quirky show like this. And it was because the rural touring people in Cumbria knew my other work had toured Where There's Muck, There's Bras, the show with them. But I came to a couple of weeks before performing it last autumn and I just thought oh my god because I read through the show again and it was really it felt like a good show for an audience explicitly interested in the history of autism activism and neurodiversity with a side order possibly of Doctor Who but if you were a person in a village hall who was just thinking oh flipping heck thank god we're out of the house after all that covid we can just be together and have communal joy I felt like it was not the show they needed. And so there, there was this, not a clash, but there was an aw my awareness of what an audience might feel they need and want and what I am providing potentially are going to be too far apart. And I wanted to provide a good night out. And that felt really important. And the show I had at the time was not going to provide a good night out, I didn't think. Yeah, you didn't. I mean, you 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 didn't you you didn't think. I suppose it's you had that fear, and you always have 
you've always had these things that you can fall back on as the things that you're a bit more dismissive of, you know, like the stand-up where you know, but it it certainly must have felt like more of a, that you were risking, I I don't, I'm I'm just, you know, from my experience when I've been in that situation, I'm, I'm petrified of being accurately accused of being self-indulgent. Yes, I think you've hit the nail on the head really. And actually, I had to balance I think I do also though have a genuinely greater awareness now of how of what a show might need in order to hit certain emotional beats and it felt like it wasn't gonna hit those not really in its current form and but I think you I mean it's possible I could have done it in the form it was in and it could have worked both for me and the audience and I may have been underestimating the audience or going by exactly that fear of being labelled self-indulgent. What I did in the end was um, sort of... (laughs) When a car... um, All my shows have had an element of this at some point because all the shows that I perform, I've done them in a venue, had a crisis, gone, oh, nothing works, killed the show, rebuilt it from the ground up while still performing it. And it's always turned out all right, but it's really quite a stressful process. Um, Anyway, yeah, there's a thing with cars. If two cars that have um, been written off are maybe stitched together effectively, it's called a cut and shut job. Um, And I um, have more than once done a cut and shut job on my spoken word shows and kind of nicked bits from this poem on bits from that show or bits from that monologue I once did and sort of cobbled them all together and then only being able to know if that works while on stage um which makes it all sound like a very unnecessarily stressful process I do hear of people and they're like yeah and well me and the director and we were in the rehearsal room and then we rehearsed it in front of some audiences and then the audiences liked it and we we changed it a bit and then I did it in front of the audiences and that was good I kind of did do that process once I suppose with where this mother's brass um, but generally it's been last minute crisis cut and shut job eventually produces the show that I probably needed to produce in the first place. Do you know who are the people I've encountered who uh, and spoken to? Encountered makes it sound like they jumped out of me while I was on a walk in a dark woods. Uh, the, the other artists who I've talked to who've had the most stressful experiences, okay, it's the people who go, oh, my last b- novel, I, oh, I I wrote it one way and then I realised that was wrong and I had to take a bit out and redo it. And and they say, so the next one, I, I'm going to plan it and I'm just going to write it like that. And that never works because, and they have the worst time ever where they go, I'm not going to do it this stressful way I've been doing it because it's inefficient. And it's the creative process that is what they're actually experiencing. And, and it sounds like you took it, to to audiences and you listened to what they were saying and what you were feeling and you make changes and and unfortunately it would be lovely if we were psychic and we could just sit down and and just produce but um can I ask how do you balance whether you do or not I don't know but you know now we've touched on self-indulgent how do you balance the need for the show to be sort of like honest and authentic to you and to meet people where they are and consider either the audience or maybe just one audience member's experience. So you're doing something that is satisfying and interesting and real to you. You're being yourself on it and is also 
considering the needs of the people who are giving up their evening and paying to come out and see it, because those things are not always pulling in the same direction. No, and I it's definitely a work in progress for me. And I do feel like I have got much better at not compromising on what I might enjoy doing or what I might think is good and needs to be said um, versus the, the the needs of an audience I, I'm I'm better at now finding the compromises and the middle ground and maybe a key to that in is in what you said about meeting an audience where they are because much as I would love an audience to have as much knowledge as I do about autism neurodiversity the need for neurodiversity um the necessity of activism the importance of overcoming stereotypes about autism um mostly realistically at the moment i have to recognize that they don't um so that's part of meeting them where they are and almost kind of i then have to consciously disentangle myself from what i really know and feel and go, maybe go back to an early earlier stage of my knowledge so it's it's almost that thing of like when you I had to write articles for an academic website and, and they insisted, even though you were kind of writing your academic research, that you it had to be comprehensible to a 15-year-old. So the syntax and the sentences and the ideas had to be, um, yeah, accessible to a 15-year-old. So there's something about that which sounds patronising, but actually it's just sensible. If people are only going to hear your words once in the context of a night out, it needs to hit them um to me at a, where they are where they might be um and then in terms of the content yeah honesty and authenticity I, th- I think humor allows you to get a, away with a lot more than you otherwise would so I think for me humor is a brilliant vehicle at that point to maybe say some of the things that are a bit harder to say it's like that whole thing of if I'd done an, a really earnest show about not wanting children I think I would have got a lot more pushback and it would have been a lot more stressful. And as it was, it was generally, apart from the inevitable moment of the show falling apart, just as the commissioner of Radio 4 was going to come and see it in a little room in Edinburgh in the 40 degree heat or whatever. Um, But apart from that, um, you know, I didn't get pushback. Audiences just talked about enjoying it. I just, I, I, I cannot... So this is perhaps, perhaps a lack in me, but I would, I can't, I would feel such a failure and I would feel sad if audiences didn't at the end say to me with what I can perceive to be sincerity, oh, I really enjoyed that. They will also then say, oh, it really made me think, you know, but first the enjoyment, always. Why, can you, maybe this is an obvious question, but why do you think humour allows you to have that it sounds like it almost gives you a sort of license or kind of covering fire. And I wonder if you could just talk about what you think it's actually doing that allows you to do something that maybe... I know you're not saying that sincerity is always in every situation not going to work, but why does... What does what's the extra bit of juice that humour's giving you? Yeah, well, I like covering fire as a phrase, and I sometimes think about a Trojan horse. There's something about, I, I do think, from an, at an affective level, as in in the body, if you are laughing, if you are having pleasure, whilst also having a thought that's maybe a new thought or that's slightly to the left or right of your usual thought, then 
you are sort of physically disarmed <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> your your defences, both your mental and almost your physical defences, are overcome, and and you allow the pleasure in. And at the same time, sneaking behind the bodily pleasure comes the idea. Um, and also because of that hierarchy that we have, which, as I say, I don't agree with, but the hierarchy that um, seriousness is first, humour is second. So if we are saying something in a humorous way, well, maybe we don't really mean it. Maybe we don't require anyone to act on it. Maybe we, you know, maybe we're just smuggling this in. Maybe it's not so important after all. And actually, that can be a way to again sneak ideas past that in fact I do think are important but I'm not owning up to how important they are and third I think humour is one of the best ways to explore contradiction and paradox because so much humour relies on blending two contradictory ideas or images together and enjoying the juxtaposition of them um so as a uh, visual example because I suddenly can't think of any jokes um a visual example is a, is a clown on a bike with hexagonal wheels, for example. <laughs> um, so that's an, an image of a, of a juxtaposition. Oh, and apologies, I'm having, again, multiple calls. That's, this never happens. Sorry, Tim, I'm just hoping that's not creating no a disturbance. Um, yeah, it's, so the juxta, to be able to convey irony, multiplicity, two or more ideas at once, to say, in fact two things at the same time to be fluid um that to me is that this or they are they're the superpowers of humor many superpowers in fact it's got but of course they're underestimated because well apparently humor is not very important well speaking of un underestimation the, the other thing i just wanted to touch on because you've brought it up before and I, it sort of occurs to me that i've not really um asked if you'd reflect on it but in uh you know everything you've been talking about as as well as that kind of like love of language that, that has been as you, you said right at the beginning real content to them and real you know a real point to them and as well as the historical information and your know, bio biographical things you're making real um I, i'm trying to tiptoe around the term political points but i mean that in a not it's not a dirty word but you know things that are important to people's lives and I, it just occurred to me that as well as because you've mentioned this that as well as humor sometimes not being taken seriously when it's trying to make a point un unfortunately we have a this country still sort of cl cleaves to a class system whether we whether we acknowledge it or not and we also have you know misogyny is still and and sexism are still at play and i i wonder if <laughs> you know i suppose some people go okay so you want to be you know you're so it seems like you've got a sort of triple threat there of doing humor and then if people aren't going to take you seriously because you're saying things humorously they also might be dismissive of what you've got to say because um you know, because, you know, you are northern or not, you know, they might not uh, code you as being middle class and capable of serious thought. And then if that's not bad enough, they might go, well, it's, you know, this is a this is a woman doing her poetry. So so she's going to be in her feelings. And I, I wonder if um, you could reflect on that, because it does sound like, you know, you may be 
even audiences who are going to be self-selecting, right, that they come to see you, uh, you're going to... That's just the society that we live in, that there's going to be people who uh, might be carrying those prejudices around. And I wonder if you feel that's affected you a, a, a lot when in your writing and how you approach it and how you try to meet people where you are, because sometimes the, where people are, and this is true of me sometimes, is we are sometimes carrying around mistaken thoughts and unthinking prejudice right exactly yeah no exactly uh, well it's in fact I've added to the triple threat of talking in a northern working class accent being a woman being funny um, I've added being openly autistic to that as if there was you know <laughs> and autistic people are often seen as um, not valid rhetoricians at all um, but actually by that point I was just going with it um, of course there's prejudice of course I'm taken less seriously uh, because of all the things I've said and in a way humour is a way of kind of defying that celebrating it resisting it being a bit frustrated about it but not about to go and adopt uh, a pronunciation accent you know kind of enjoying the times where I always say oh I'm on when I'm on radio four I'm trying to destroy the southern media hegemony one flat vowel at a time um there is a certain cultural capital that comes with my northernness there are many things you know many jobs I've got because I'm a northern woman um but at the same time there is an amount of cultural capital I do not have and will never have um because I am not a man speaking with an RP accent um my PhD helped me make peace with that and come to terms with it, actually. By the time I'd done kind of three and a half years research on, no, I wasn't imagining uh, that these factors were leading to me and other performers being taken less seriously, um, ultimately possibly earning less money in certain circumstances um, and not having the same access to certain uh, gate-kept cultural institutions um you know would have kind of found out it wasn't just the northern chip on my shoulder somehow I have <laughs> as I say I've kind of accepted it it can be frustrating um at the moment my book where there's muck there's bras which as I say does have a kind of valid manifesto point about um northern women and their invisibility through history um it is not being taken, <laughs> tangibly not being taken as seriously. There's a parallel book called Northerners by Brian Groom, which is a really good kind of social history of the North. Um, the books were published by the same publisher. Um, here's a little after mine. Um, mine hasn't been reviewed anywhere in any publications. I had more reviews and more, ironically, being taken seriously for my last poetry collection, Um which came out with Nine Arches Press last year. It was on featured on um, Front Row on Radio 4. It's had some reviews, not mainstream reviews, but some reviews. It's kind of been noticed and noted, whereas Where There's Muck, There's Bras. And is the title something to do with it as well? And the cartoons of Northern women on the front? Um, it kind of just screams, don't take me as seriously as the book by a bloke that's generally about the North and that has a serious cover. Um, so it has real impacts on me. Um, it has ups and downs. I um, 
I'm interested in fluidity of identity. I'm interested in how someone can confuse ideas of what identity is by being lots of things at the same time. So although I really seriously considered whether it was wise to throw autism explicitly into the mix, I now just think, well, it's very confusing. <laughs> There's a northern funny uh, autistic uh, woman poet slash prose writer slash spoken word artist going about the place and that confusion for me maybe helps create potentially new meanings helps undercut stereotypes I mean sometimes it just creates confusion um, <laughs> but I, I think it can be quite a productive confusion I think if you find yourself living with identities that seem to contradict each other or contradict other people's ideas of what those identities can and should be and then you add the forms that you write in or perform in to that um I, I think you can use those forms of writing and performing to play with your identity slash identities um and maybe that's even more urgent. I suppose I'm thinking of um, trans people and, and, and people whose gender is fluid. There's there's really interesting interplay to be had then and, and, and an urgency to writing about that because actually trans people are a kind of their very existence is under threat in, in certain ways in both at a discourse level and physically. I, 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 lo I love this idea of that you were saying about sort of not confusion can sometimes be productive because I think you're right in the sense that when someone just if you can just get someone that to the point of pausing and saying I'm not sure it's very difficult to sort of actively destroy someone's life from uh, a place of curiosity and uh, and and humility I think probably of going God, I should find out more about this before I decide what I think is I think probably not gonna lead is kind of like the is i think a good pillar in the sort of like i can't continue that metaphor but it's a good thing against prejudice i think it's a good bastion against prejudice is 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 making people not quite so sure about the things that they think that they know absolutely absolutely well put and i think the space in which to do that might be quite short it might be the space of a performance because in that hour that liminal space that in-between space where it's the theater it's not real life you can shift people's minds or maybe it's the space that it takes them to read an article or a book or listen to a podcast and then they may or may not go into their everyday life and take that new understanding with them but the idea is that maybe maybe they will actually maybe some of them will enough will that some fixed ideas are being shifted and actually you know you use what you've got as a writer and a performer unless so I, I did not and probably was not able to I mean if I was really determined and I knew it was what I was supposed to do I was supposed to do and I really wanted to do it maybe I could have taken a path where I took myself off to Oxbridge, changed my accent, uh, lived in London, you know, lots of things that I couldn't really afford, wasn't really inclined to do, but possibly could have if I was dead set on it. Um, but given that I didn't, um, you know, this is what I've got. <laughs> so mm -hmm. <laughs> pragmatically, you use the resources available to you to the best of your ability. 
Kate, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very conscious of um, uh, wanting to honour your time, but I'm also really enjoying talking to you. But the, so, so to sort of to finish off, the one thing I wanted to ask you was, I don't, I know, I'm not in any way asking you to speak for all neurodivergent people or all autistic people, but I wonder, and I also think that sometimes these things are somewhat universal. Um, but I, I wondered if, as a someone who writes, who also is autistic, have you found any uh, techniques, any ways of working, any tricks and tips that have made it easier to work with the bits that help and uh, work around the bits that maybe make writing more difficult? Yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, it feels like a really important question. And what's, what I'm finding at the moment is that other autistic writers are coming to me, um, maybe kind of newer writers, and they're asking, how can I fit into this world that is not necessarily built for me in terms of publishing and performing? And I'm discovering it's a really important question that I had to sort of work out and improvise um, and they really don't know all the answers, but I suspect they are very individual to each writer. But And this sounds really obvious, but the publishing world is not built for autistic writers, even though loads of writers in it are autistic. So maybe being aware of that is quite helpful. Um, the Society of Authors is just in the process of starting up a neurodivergent authors group, actually. And I think there is something important about connecting up with other neurodivergent writers and sharing experiences. Um, for me, I mean, I maybe <laughs> this is almost like an anti-tip. It's if you read all the tips for writers, bear in mind that lots of the people giving those tips are either neurotypical or trying to fit into a neurotypical world. And what works for them may not work for you. So just because, um, you know, Philip Roth got up at five in the morning and wrote till one in the afternoon and had a break for his lunch and to seduce someone in the park or whatever he did that's all hypothetical yeah, that I can't remember sound, what Philip Roth did that, that did sound quite plausible quite plausible actually Roth. yeah yeah um you know that may, may not work for you because you're having to work with the fact that probably quite often you work best when you focus 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 and then don't focus you'll have to work through the fact that quite often as an autistic person you're probably quite burned out um you have to work with the fact that sensory elements uh sensory input is really important um some adhd writers particularly may find that they write better in a crowded cafe or where there's noise um so that's helpful to know if you've always thought oh i should work in a quiet darkened room um despite the fact that i've always had an office to write in i cannot write in an office <laughs> and I've, 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 i was in total denial about this and i'm like no i just seem to write on I mean, I wrote the book, the Where There's Muck, There's Bras. Um, I gave myself kind of a target every day, which did actually work for me, kind of 1,500 words-ish per day. And I'd sometimes be on the settee, I'd sometimes be on my other settee, I'd sometimes be at the table. I'm not sure what the rhyme or reason was, but I seem to need to move around a bit when I write. Um, if I was trying to fit myself into some rigid idea of how, where, why, when and what, I would struggle. But maybe the key thing is, <laughs> I, it is really hard for me to write if my brain is not 
quite passionately engaged in what I'm writing about, if I'm not lit up and charged with excitement. And that really does seem to be the case for a lot of neurodivergent people. We kind of, our brains run on what excites us and it's a mistake to try push against your brain I think so the things I've you know I've talked with more enthusiasm about the things that I've written about that fire me up like my PhD and um, the Doctor Who show I think than some of the things that I've written while not especially charged up I can get very excited for the duration of writing a conference poem um because suddenly that is the sole focus of my attention. Um, and even if I wasn't previously interested in colostomy nurses, I'm suddenly very passionately interested about them, but only for a day. And that's fine. Um, but again, we. I also write quickly. We, you talked earlier about the topical writing. Um, I can write very quickly and process very quickly. And that's often disapproved of in writing. It's like, oh, don't write poems about that. Um, you know, enough time hasn't passed. Pandemic poems, for example, I wrote quite a lot of poems during lockdown. If you process the world really quickly, that that advice is not going to apply to you. It's just a false hierarchy. It's a fake binary. Um, so this, I don't know, that doesn't feel like many actual tips. It's just kind of saying, be aware, you'll probably do things your own way. Find out what that way is and ignore the rest. No, that's, I think that I really understand. I think that's, you know, I, I think it's it's much better to clear the deck of illusory tips that are going to make just make people feel inadequate and stupid because they try it and it doesn't work. And then they go, they conclude, well, I must be in some way not suited for this or fundamentally broken. I think of, of that's a very good anti tip is just to warn people, you know, it's just you know, I think that's really that's really useful, actually, uh, just to give people permission to go, well, this may not have been, this, this may, you may be starting from a different point and these directions may end up with you fl- foundering in the sea rather than at your d- desired destination. Mm, exactly, exactly. Thanks very much for chatting, Kate. I've really, really enjoyed talking. Um, if people want to uh, find out about your you know putative future shows online or where they can see you uh live or or find your work is there anywhere they can go to uh find that information yeah um so twitter is the best medium for me i do actually keep that updated and tweet quite often that's at kate fox writer and my website does need a big overhaul and but it does have some things on just i haven't believed in the future for a while (laughs) Um, that's katefoxwriter.co.uk and for pictures of basically my dinner or my last swim at kate fox writer on instagram but it's not really some oh actually i do on purpose post things from when i've just done an event but i don't tend to preview events on instagram so yeah twitter is the best way and tim thank you it really you have asked i've just it's so satisfying to be asked these sort of questions and to to really have to kind of look back and think in depth and make connections about how and what i write like really rich so thank you oh you're very very welcome and um for everyone listening i hope you have a wonderful week of writing